Well, as I said earlier, my name is Joshua, and I'm one of the pastors here, and I invite you to grab a Bible, if you haven't already, because we're going to be looking at this passage that Joyce just read. This is one of my favorite passages in the entire New Testament, which um, is always a tough thing to say before you preach a sermon on it, because you want it to be as meaningful and impactful as what you have read and come to love. And many times, the act of preaching is kind of like going to a well of water in life and trying to take it to some people. But by the time you get there, the water just feels like it's dripped out of your fingers. Um, So hopefully, though, we will see some of what God has for us in this passage as we look at it together. And as we do, let's pray. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, we ask that you would illuminate this passage for us. You would give us ears to hear and eyes to see that through the preaching of your word, your spirit would minister among us. And Lord, you would renew us day by day through this hope that we have in Christ. We pray this in his name. Amen. Well, as you just heard in that passage, um, a phrase maybe stuck out to you. If you read the whole chapter, you would see that Paul uses it twice. And it's this phrase, we do not lose heart. We do not lose heart. And while that sounds really good, you realize if you read it in context that it comes after a long list of suffering. We do not lose heart is only meaningful because there are lots of reasons to lose heart. There are lots of reasons to lose heart. And Paul says in this passage that hope, if hope is worth anything at all, it has to come in the exact moments that make it seem so impossible. Now, I I think we may be living in a crisis of hope. I'm not the only one that thinks this. Other other people more intelligent, more savvy than me have said it. Um, You know, if you're my age or younger, you grew up in a world where um, there was this threat, these multiple threats just swirling around you all the time. The threat of a school shooting. The threat of terrorism that could happen at any moment the threat of global warming and a looming environmental disaster that's coming upon us. Um, a, a columnist David, named David Brooks actually calls our present moment, he calls it an era, an era defined by fear. And a journalist named David French actually says that, um, actually attributes this crisis, this age of fear um, for the, the rising death rates among middle-class whites and the plummeting birth rates. And it seems that, that hope, when it's lost, when we do lose heart, it's deadly. And losing heart is, I think, in the air that we breathe. But it's not just um, out in the world. It's also something that's in us. Because um, nothing causes me to lose heart like when I feel like I'm out of control and the moments that show me how little control I actually have and how powerless I am in this world. I remember walking into a meeting with a man who was estranged from his wife and we were praying, hoping that she would come back. And at that very moment, he gets a text from her saying, this is over. The marriage is through. I will, not, I will never come back. 
I remember walking into a hospital to see a friend whose mom had just retired and planned for her retirement, and she fell ill during the night, unexplainably, and was in a coma that would eventually take her life. In that moment, how do you, lo- how do you not lose heart? I remember walking into the same hospital the same year, to see a couple whose son, a couple in my church whose son went in for a routine procedure and they discovered before he left that he had leukemia. How do you not lose heart when you're in the hospital room with a family whose two-year-old son has just been diagnosed with leukemia? Many of you um, are in similar positions today. You've gotten a phone call, a text. You've gotten a diagnosis and you're wondering, how can I have hope? How can I not lose hope in the midst of this situation that I have so little control over when I feel so powerless? Well, Paul tells us that if we want to have hope, it's got to be something that's not just internal. It's got to be something that's external and objective and real. That's the only kind of hope that's worth having. And he says to not lose, to to not live with hope is deadly in multiple ways. It's not just deadly because It's deadly to live a life without hope. It's also deadly because hope itself is risky. Hope is vulnerable. If we hope in things, we can get hurt. And so the very situations that demand us to have hope, where they require hope for us to to persevere through them, are also the circumstances that take away our hope. And so um, we need a real and certain hope, especially if we are to live as citizens of God's kingdom. Um, And a a pastor put it this way. He says that Christians, Christians must live by hope. He says, Christians live in the present off the fat of the future because of the past. That to be a Christian is to be a, a future citizen, to live in the present off the fat of the future, off what we know about the future in the presence, in the present, because of what God has done in the past. Paul says it this way. He says, we must live in this paradox of life and death, that externally we are wasting away day by day, but internally we are being renewed day by day. In fact, if we look at this passage, it is full of paradoxes. Um, There's treasure in jars of clay. There's life and death. There's light and heavy There's momentary and eternal. And then there's everything in the middle of that passage that we just read about being struck down but not not knocked out. To live as a Christian with hope is to live in paradox. It's to live in between two worlds. It's to live in the world that's now and the world that is to come. It's to live in the midst of life and death, in the midst of the cross and the crown. And Paul says there's no way, there's no simple way to give hope. There's no simple way to explain it. And so instead, he invites us to walk through this labyrinth, to walk through the paradoxes, and to walk between life and death, as he tells us that our ultimate hope is in the glory that awaits us. So let's look at some of those paradoxes. Um, He says, to begin with, in in the very first verse that was read, He says, but we have this treasure in jars of clay. Now, what does that mean? You know, Paul could, he's writing to the Corinthians. 
Um, but many of them would have had Jewish backgrounds, so it's possible that um, he was talking about a hit band in the 90s called Jars of Clay. Um, by the way, that album, Jars of Clay, self-titled, I promise you, it stands up like till today. It's still good. Um, it's possible that he was talking about that, but I don't think that's what he was talking about. I think um, one thing he could have been talking about is that, that people who interpreted the, the Torah in the Jewish community said that, that like uh, wine is aged in earthen vessels, the Torah is given to those who are humble. So treasure in jars of clay could have been this double entendre, actually like a humble brag in some ways. Because I'm so humble, I get, I get this knowledge. In fact, if you go up a verse um, to verse 6, which we didn't read, Paul actually says what we have, what the treasure is in those jars of clay. He says that it's the, the light of knowing God, the light of the knowledge of God's glory in the face of Jesus. And see, it, it was actually um, common during that time to, to put your treasure in a jar of clay. You know, kind of like the way, you know, some of you may put your life savings in your mattress. Um, that was kind of the same way. You take your treasure and you hide it in, a, in an unassuming vessel in your house like we would put it under our mattress or put it in the freezer. It's just a place of hiding it. But yet, does God really hide hide the light of the knowledge of Jesus in us? I don't think that's what he means. Um, you know, it's, historians will tell us that in Corinth, there was actually, um, we've uncovered lots of, of clay lamps, little jars that hold oil. And, um, and they were cheap, fragile clay pots in the markets in Corinth. And, and I think that's actually the image that he wants us to have here, is, is not a jar, but a lamp, a, an earthen vessel made for holding light. See, that fits with his, with his metaphor, right? That in these jars of clay, that is us, those who have seen the glory of Christ, he puts the light in the jar of clay, the light of the knowledge of God in Christ. And so what he's saying, Paul's saying that, that we actually have this treasure not because we're good enough, not because we're smart enough or humble enough. We have this treasure um, actually in our frailty, in our weakness. See, he, um, this is kind of what I imagine here a little terracotta pot. Um, they wouldn't be shaped this way because um, this wouldn't be a very good lamp, but you get the idea, right? He says, we have the light of the knowledge of God, the glory of God in a, in a frail earthen vessel, just a little pot made of clay. But, but what do jars of clay do? What do they do? Do you know? They break. They break. Um, warning for those of you who take communion on this side. <laughs> um, and that's the point. See, Paul is saying, if it were just us, we would shatter. If it were just us, we would shatter. But we have something more than just our frail human nature, more than just our bodies that are wasting away. We have the light of the knowledge of God. And that light gets to bring light to all who 
we come in contact with. We get to bring light into a dark world. And so we need, we need the light of God's glory if we're going to have hope. And, and because jar, uh, jars of clay break, he goes on to list all of the ways that he has been broken. He says, we are afflicted in every way. We are perplexed. We are driven to despair. Sorry, we are persecuted. We are struck down. We are always carrying in the body the death of Jesus. See, if you were just to read um, the the kind of negative side of, of this paradox, he's saying, look at all this death. Look at all this brokenness and affliction that we are experiencing. And, and you actually line it up and you see, man, that is, um, that is a lot to bear. Being afflicted in every way, being perplexed and persecuted and struck down, and, and actually caring about death, the death of Jesus in our bodies. See, if, um, see, Paul has a real hope, but yet it doesn't, it's not a hope that, causes him to ignore the real pain of this world. He is stunningly, shockingly realistic in this passage about all the affliction that he is going through. He's saying, we have had a lot of pain. We have had a lot of suffering. We have had so much persecution. It's like we're carrying around the death of Jesus in our bodies. Every day we feel pain and we feel death pressing in on us. So hope can't just mean that things will eventually get better. That that can't be what Paul's talking about. Because you know what happened to Paul after all this? He died. He died. But Paul says, our, our hope doesn't come from things getting better. Our hope comes that even when things get worse, we have something that's that's better than what our eyes can see. And that's what you see in in this paradox, this labyrinth of life and death being woven together. He says, at the same time as our suffering, we are not crushed. We are not driven to despair. We are not forsaken. We are not destroyed. The life of Jesus is being manifested in our bodies, in our mortal flesh. And it means life for you and community of the church. So what is Paul doing here? In weaving together this life and death, suffering and hope. Maybe it's, you know, just a saccharine, sentimental message. Hey, they can't get you down. Just keep going. They they might, and if you look at it in the Greek, it's actually stronger because the words are almost the same. It's like saying, knocked down, but not knocked out. So it's Paul just saying, they can knock us down, but they can't knock us out. Well, I don't think of all the things that Paul is as an apostle, I don't think one of them is a motivational speaker. If you read all of his writings, you'll see he is not a motivational speaker. This is not a halftime pep talk from the coach. He's talking about something real and objective. He's saying that in the midst of our greatest suffering, Christ is at work. Just like he has put his treasure in jars of clay He's, he's actually doing something in us and through us, even in our suffering. He's not saving us from suffering. 
He's saving us through suffering. And he, does, he can say this because he's pointing us to Jesus. This is Paul's theology of the cross coming out again. As, as he walks through all of the suffering and affliction, he, he weaves this thread of redemption. And he says that, that what we have in Christ cannot be destroyed. What we have in Christ cannot be forsaken. Cancer cannot take Jesus from us. Persecution cannot drive us to despair. Even our own sins cannot leave us abandoned. And throughout this passage, he keeps using the name Jesus. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. If you read on to the, through the verses that we skipped, he keeps using the name Jesus. Not, not even that his title of Christ, not even our Lord, but the name of Jesus. And what he's doing is he's wanting them to say, look, look at Jesus, the incarnate God. He suffered. And he saved you through suffering. It was through his passion and death on the cross that you were saved. And then Jesus was resurrected. And you too will be resurrected. See, Paul sees all things through the cross and the resurrection. All of our suffering, sorrow, sin, and shame will go through the cross and be resurrected and redeemed on the other side. And it, because of that, it's, it's not mere sentimentalism. It's not just they can knock us down, but they can't knock us out. It's that even if you knock me down, even that knocking down will be resurrected. Even God will use that to bring about life. Because even through the hands of sinful men, Jesus achieved salvation for his people and rose from the dead. So anything you throw at me in this world actually cannot take me captive because a greater force is at work in me, and that is the resurrection of Jesus. And it's not actually just in the future. It's actually being at work now in the present. And how, and how is that? How is it in the present? Because to be honest with you, resurrection sounds far off to me. Um, and, I, and I know Christians live in the present off the fat of the future because of the past. But that doesn't mean that we wait. Even now, in, as we confess and proclaim the name of Jesus, life is at work in us. Even now, his resurrection power is at work in us. And he tells us how in verses 16 through 18. This is where Paul lifts the veil and says, I know that this is hard to understand. I know this is a mystery, but I'm going to lift the veil and show you how it's possible. This is what he says. Actually, before I read those verses, I just want to tell you what it actually does for us. Uh, before he tells us how, how it happens, the basis of our hope, let me just tell you what that hope does for us. See, sometimes as Christians, living in an age defined by fear, we can say, in a very Christian way, we can say, hey, don't get your hopes up. Put your hope in God. Don't hope in that relationship that you're just starting. Don't put your hope in that. Don't put your hope in that job interview that you have tomorrow. Don't put your hope in that treatment that you're getting next week. Put your hope in God. Because if you put your hope in anything else, it will fail you. Now, all of that is true. 
But if we lived like that, if we lived like that, then we would be in some ways living with the least hope among people. But I think the way Paul understands hope is different. He says, put your hope in God so that you can hope in things in the here and now. So that you can hope in that new job. You can hope in that relationship. You can hope in that child that's in the womb. Because even if those things don't happen, even if they don't happen, I will still have you. You will still be resurrected. You will still be redeemed. You will still be a new creation in me. And actually, I will even redeem that suffering. And so I don't think Paul tells us this just to say, hey, don't get your hopes up. I think what he's telling us to do is hope in God so that even when the things that you put your, your secondary hope in in this life fail you, there is, you will still have something that, that no one can take away. And if we are putting our hope in God, then I think we actually can live the most hopeful lives in the present. We can actually get our hopes up and say, I really want this to happen because we know that even, even if we risk hope, and hope is risky, if we risk hope and it hurts us and we don't get what we desire, that God will still redeem us and resurrect that on our behalf. So I think what it actually does for us is it gives us a defiant hope in the midst of darkness. Um, if you know anything about uh, this rare disease, Batten disease, it affects children. And, it, and it's kind of like the principle of death uh, begins to work over time. Um, it, it makes them often lose skills that they had. They, they, they lose the ability to walk, the ability, the ability to talk, and eventually they die. Um, at a young age, in their 20s often. And there's a mother of uh, a child who has Batten disease who gave a TED Talk on hope in a hopeless world. Her name is, is Peta Merchinson. I don't, I don't know that she's a believer, um, but she started this Instagram feed called uh, Bounce for Batten. And it's just full of pictures of children and their families jumping, just leaping for joy. Some of them who've been diagnosed with Batten disease and some of them, their families who are living in the shadow of death and jumping. That is a defiant hope. And, and that is the way we live as Christians. In the midst of death, in the shadow of death, we leap, we laugh, we rejoice. We do this because our hope is objective and certain, and it's something outside of ourselves. And we do it because we know that God's going to take care of us, regardless of what happens, even if we're broken like a jar of clay. Even if we're broken to death, God will resurrect our bodies and bring us back to life in his new creation, in his kingdom. And so we get to defy the darkness with, with hope. And we live in this defiant hope. And now Paul pulls back the veil and shows us what the basis for our hope is. In verse 16 through 18, he says it, says it again here. 
so we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Now, what is he saying there? He's saying that, um, you know, I heard a pastor once call this psychological realism. That Paul is looking at, at all of the suffering in his world. He's saying it feels, it feels like the end. It feels like I'm crushed. And yet I know that I will not be abandoned. I know that the, that the resurrection of Jesus is at life in me. And when we get to these verses, Paul tells us that something in the future is going to overturn everything evil, every pain and sorrow and suffering and sin and shame that we've experienced will be overturned. See, he says that, that on the outside, we're wasting away. And if you look at pictures of me um, before I had kids and pictures of me now, um, that'd be a good illustration of wasting away. Um, we're dying. We're we're in jars of clay. We're being broken. A thousand deaths are at work in our mortal bodies, in our flesh, every day. And yet, and yet, we are being renewed day by day. And um, and so, even while we're dying, all of this, all of this human life, all of the suffering that's in it, Paul says that that in reality. Even though it seems heavy, and if you remember back in chapter one, he said something like, like we were burdened beyond anything that we could carry or something like that. Um, and yet here he says that it's all of life, all of our suffering is a light, momentary affliction. That those, those moments in the hospital awaiting treatment, that those, those years grieving the agony of divorce, and all the decades that surrounded it are but a light and momentary, transient suffering. But it doesn't feel like that, does it? But notice what he, what he points us to. He says that, that there is a principle of life, of resurrection that's at work in us. And he says that, that God is actually, um, through that light momentary affliction, preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Now that in, that in itself is enough to just think that, that, all, that I, all the suffering that I experience in this life will be light and momentary compared to the eternal weight of glory that awaits me. But that's not actually what Paul says. He doesn't say, he does say that it's beyond all comparison, but he doesn't say that, that if you line up all your suffering on one side of the scale and you line up all of your glory on the other side of the scale, that the glory far exceeds the suffering. So just do a simple, simple mathematics here and take hope in that. That's not what he says. And you're all looking at your Bibles right now, and I love that, because you think that's what he says. And he does say that, but it's more than that. He says, actually, the suffering, 
the light and momentary affliction that you're enduring is preparing you for this eternal weight of glory. That it's actually active and meaningful and doing something in you actively now. It's not just that you compare them and do the math. It's that that suffering is doing something. And the word there, if you look at it in the Greek, is is even stronger. It says that um, it's this word that means working out, producing, achieving, bringing about, fashioning, or crafting. So there's a cause and effect that, that, that the suffering, the agony, the loneliness, the pain, the divorce, the disease, the death, everything that you're experiencing now is actually bringing about the glory in you. It's bringing about, it's crafting and, and forging an eternal weight of glory in you. That somehow in the kingdom to come, the suffering that you experience now will be more than paid for. And that those who suffer more in this life will somehow mysteriously be repaid in glory. Now, I say mysteriously. How does this work? I don't know. I have no idea. It's beyond mathematics. But this is what Paul says. He says that even our suffering is doing something in us that will result in glory in a way that will almost be glad that it happened in the end. And it'll be eternal. It'll last forever. I don't know how it works. I don't know how it works. But I do know that um, in the 15th century, the Japanese developed this new way of, of repairing pottery. Um, whenever a pot would break, um, they wanted to keep the pot. And you would never do that with this with terracotta. Um, but you would take a ceramic pot and, and they would glue the pieces back together. And where they glued them together, they would, they would mix in gold. It's called kintsugi. And, and at the end, they had a pot that was actually more beautiful, more glorious, more valuable than it was at the beginning. They took this broken pot and they repaired it with glory. And I think that's something of what God does with us, these frail jars of clay. With all of our suffering, he somehow, through uniting us to the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, repairs us with more glory and beauty than we had before. But what is glory? What is glory? Um, if you just look at the word, you've probably heard before that in the Old Testament, it, means, it actually means weight. So as Paul's saying, an eternal weight of weight. Um, you may also have heard that it, that it means luminescence, brightness, like the glory of a sunset, the glory of the morning star. Or maybe you've heard that it means fame, And um, C.S. Lewis, in his sermon, The Weight of Glory, doubt from looking at this passage, he says that if, you know, his whole life, if if glory was fame, he thought it just sounded like it belonged more to to hell than heaven. Um, Because if fame is just being well-known, more well-known than others, then that that seems like a comparison among other people. And it it just doesn't seem like 
like the glory that we're going to receive is going to be fame among men. And he says, on the other hand, luminescence, like nobody wants to be a light bulb. Um, those are his words. Um, so what does glory actually mean? And as I encourage you to read this sermon um, or listen to it, he says that um, what he came to realize through reading Milton and Aquinas and all the ancient theologians is that they actually gravitated towards that idea of glory as fame. And the reason why is because it's not fame among men. It's fame with God. That the glory that awaits us is actually being appreciated, loved, delighted in by God. And that struck me in a different way this, this, time, this week as I read it. Because a lot of times, if I were to preach this passage, I would, I would look into chapter 5, as, as we looked at uh, last week, and I would say, we have a new creation, a new heaven, a new earth, which means that all of our desires, everything that we long for in this world, there is a kingdom coming where our desires will be perfected and fulfilled. And so the deepest longings of our hearts are to be found in Jesus and the coming kingdom. But if you look at glory as fame from God, it doesn't mean just that, that you'll be able to see the beauty of that sunset, the beauty of a meal, all in the way that you were supposed to see it. It doesn't mean that, that your desires will be fulfilled, although I think that is true. It actually means that we are, are not consuming glory. We are the objects of glory. We are the objects of glory. That's what it means to receive the eternal weight of glory. That God will make us like Christ. And if you look through the New Testament, it's clear how often the New Testament talks like this. It says that the objective of our, of our faith is not that we would know him, but that he would know us. Jesus prayed before he was crucified that we would know the love of the Father the way he knows the love of the Father. In Romans 8, we're promised that those who are justified will be glorified. In Peter, we're told that we will, we will be partakers in glory, in God's glory. When Christ appears, we will appear, what? In glory. We will be raised in glory. And what does he say to those in Christ? He says, well done, my good and faithful servant. The glory that we receive in this age to come, the eternal weight of glory is in being desired by God. It means that this whole story, this whole history of redemption is, is God as a lover saying, I will redeem my people. I will bring my beloved home. And when I do, I will throw a party for them. We'll call it the marriage supper of the lamb. And I will look out at all the people that I've redeemed and I will delight in them. I will glorify them. They will have an eternal weight of glory. They will have my pleasure and my delight forever. It means that if our chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever, then it means that his, one of his chief desires is to glorify us and enjoy us forever as we share in 
his glory. And I think we see this most of all as people who live in the present off the fat of the future because of the past. We see this in the cross of Jesus. Why did he go to the cross? Enduring, despising the shame. He did it for the joy that was set before him. What was the joy? Heaven? He had that. Was it being with God, being with the Father? He had that for all eternity. What was the joy that drove him to the cross? It was you. It was me. It was the redemption of his people. That's the vision. That's the hope that drove him to the cross. And for us, our hope is that at the end of the ages, at the beginning of eternity, that God will take these jars of clay from the fire of suffering, redeemed through the cross, and he will raise us up to new life. Not with slivers of of gold fashioning us together, but completely made new. And the potter will take the pot and say, this is my pot. This is what I've longed for. This is what I've desired. And he will delight in the work of his hands. That's our glory. And that's what sustains us in the darkness, in an age of fear. Because it tells us that it can't be taken away. Because it's located in the heart of God and God gets what he wants. So may we, um, may we see the glory that awaits us with eyes of hope. And may we hope even in the darkness so that we can bear the light of the knowledge of the glory of God. So that we can bear the light of the gospel in a dark world so that others can have this hope. May we write that today. Amen.